almost it kills you, kills you to the bone. But there's nothing in nature that freezes your heart like years of being alone. It paints you with indifference like a lady paints with rouge. And the worst of the worst, the most hated and cursed, is the one that we call Scrooge. Unkind as any, and the wrath of many, this is Ebenezer Scrooge. Oh, there goes Mr. Humbug, there goes Mr. Grimm. If they gave a prize for being mean, the winner would be him. Old Scrooge, he loves his money cause he thinks it gives him power. If he became a flavor, you can bet he would be sour. That is, uh, that is the best version of A Christmas Carol, and uh, I will take no arguments to the contrary. Here, here he is, Mr. Scrooge, wandering around London with the Muppets, singing about this man who loves money. He loves what it does for him. He loves the power that it gives, the security it provides. But there's even more to that, and, and as you watch this show, or you read the book, or, or however you want to go about it, but you should watch The Muppets, it's good, you realize that this man truly believes that his worth comes from his money. In fact, he believes that everything's worth, and everyone's worth, comes from their money. Now, this is a caricature. But Dickens, who, who wrote uh, A Christmas Carol, knew that it wasn't too far off from the reality of his time. Charles Dickens' family was thrown into debtor's prison when he was 12 years old. And so at 12 years old, what he had to do is he had to start working at a boot blacking factory. Ten-hour days, making six shillings a week. If you adjust for inflation, that's about $38 today. He knew what it was like when people assign worth based on circumstances. If you are wealthy, you matter. If you're poor, you don't. Now, as I get to this point, I look out and I realize I forgot to dismiss the kids. So, kiddos, I wanted y'all to see that clip, but kiddos, if y'all would like to go with Miss Sarah, y'all can go on ahead and you don't have to listen to me prattling on. Parents, don't forget to pick them up later. (laughs) So Dickens knew what it was like when people assign worth based on your circumstances. If you're wealthy, you matter. If you're poor, you don't. And we also know that that was certainly the case around Jesus' time. One scholar put it this way. He said, religion was not much help to the poor. They simply weren't the favorites of the gods. There was a Zeus Xenios for strangers and a Zeus Hicatesios for supplicants, but there was no Zeus Patokios for the poor, nor any other god with an epithet indicating concern for the needy. It was rather the rich who were seen as the favorites of the divine world, their wealth being the visible proof of that favor. The poor could not pray for help from the gods because they were poor, for their poverty was a disadvantage in their contact with the gods. We saw that with the Greeks. We saw that with the Romans. It was the same with many, many other cultures. It was the same in Dickens' culture. But certainly we don't believe any of that today, right? The more money you have, the more important you are. 
Hey, by the way, could anybody tell me who Taylor Swift is dating these days? Does anybody know? Nobody? Who's on the tabloids? Who's on the talk shows? Who's on the billboards? We, we all know these things. We're inundated with it. We see it all the time. Meanwhile, how many of you know where your neighbor in the pew or your neighbor in your, at your home will be spending Christmas this year? and whether they'll be spending it with anyone or whether they'll be spending it alone. You see, culture still preaches this idea. The more you have, the more you are worth. And the problem is, sometimes we start to believe it. Sometimes we do. We, we, we just unintentionally, the culture washes over us and we start to, to, to just kind of operate or, or have in the background this idea that the more someone has, the more they matter, and not even just to people in society, but to God. We can apply that on others, but most likely you apply it on yourself. I'm not as important. I'm not worth as much. One writer said, it's easy to tell ourselves, you are too broken, too wicked, too weak. You have wasted too much time and squandered too many of God's gifts to redeem your life. In other words, you are a have-not. You may not have poverty in your bank account, but you at least have poverty of mind or poverty of body, poverty of spirit, poverty of talent, poverty of heart. And so you matter less. That's the lie that we can tell ourselves, I am not as important as fill in the blank. It may be true that to society, to culture, those who are rich and influential and talented matter more, but it cannot be true. It cannot be true that what you have or don't have determines how much you matter to God. And we know that. We can see it in all kinds of places in Scripture, but we see it in these two verses right here. Luke chapter 2, these three verses, excuse me. Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. We're going to read this together. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him, Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Well, what's happening here in this passage? What's happening is there is a law about ritual purity, and we've talked about this before, that it's the, when the Bible is talking about you know, your, your purity, your ritual purity in the Old Testament, it's not talking about something moral. It's talking about being ready for the thing you're about to do in the presence of the Lord. It's about being ready for going into the temple. It's about being ready to be in certain environments. So you could think about it today, like um, if you were going to go to a wedding, right? Um, but you've been working out in the fields, you've been working with the cattle, you've been doing all kinds of stuff. You have all kinds of things over you. You would not dare walk into a wedding and expect to be received and welcomed as an honored guest. You would, you would expect to have people look at you because you're, you're not dressed for the occasion. That's similar. It's similar to what happens with these purity laws. It's not wrong to be ritually impure. It's not a moral thing, but it affects where you can go and what you can do. 
And so to become ritually pure, again, there were sacrifices involved. But if we read this passage, if we read this passage with first century eyes, we're going to see something important. What is the sacrifice that Mary and Joseph offer? What does it say in verse 24? Anybody want to shout it out? What do you see? A pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. Now, why does that matter? Well, I'm sure I don't have to tell you because you all know Leviticus from heart. But Leviticus 12, verses 6 through 8 says this, And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old, for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb, do you hear that? Then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. What does this tell us about Joseph and Mary? What does this tell us about the Christmas story? They were poor. Joseph and Mary were poor. Too poor to afford a lamb for the offering. And so they followed that provision in the law to offer up two turtle doves or two young pigeons. Why? It's all they could afford. It might have even been more than they could afford. If you think about it, and you think about what's been going on to get to this point, they've had to travel. He's had to stop work. They've had to travel. They've had to stay with friends or family or somebody. Travel again. All of this is costly. And so they go on and on, and they get to the temple, and they, this, is, this is the most that they can afford, maybe even more than they could afford. Two turtle doves or two young pigeons, because Jesus was born into poverty. What would culture say then? What would culture say now? It would say, well, they must not be that important then. But we know that can't be true. We know. We know that they matter to God. God chose them. God chose Mary. He chose Joseph and not anyone else to be the royal family of Jesus. A poor, simple family for the king of creation. They must matter to God. If we think about that, and, and, and we reflect on our culture, you realize secular, secularism will teach, and even religion will teach, that in order to matter, you must be useful. You better have wealth in your wallet, or wealth in your mind, wealth of vitality, wealth of something. And the more you have, the more useful you are, the more you matter. But only Christianity teaches that you matter to God without being useful. I'm going to say that one more time. You matter to God without being useful. You have value. You have value because he loves you. 
You have nothing he needs. He, he has everything that he needs. You have value because he loves you. That means that your poverty or your wealth, your usefulness or your lack, do not determine your value. You have value because God made you and he loves you and you matter to him regardless of what you do or you don't have. And in this one fact alone, in Jesus being born into poverty to poor parents with a mother whose reputation was stained by having this child, God turns the world and its culture on their head poverty of wallet, of your heart, of your mind, of your body, does not determine how much you matter to God. Contrary to everything taught in every other religion, contrary to everything that you will hear in culture, it doesn't determine how much you matter to God. And again and again throughout his life, Jesus affirms he doesn't only care for those that culture says we should care about. He also cares about those that culture says we shouldn't care about. I love how he puts it in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, starting in verse 2. (coughs) It says, he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. (coughs) Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Do you, do you hear the kinds of people Jesus is talking about? The kinds of people that culture says, you don't need to worry about them. They don't matter. They matter to him. They matter to God. And that means that you matter to God. Culture screams against that idea, but God insists that it's true. Why? Doesn't he know my faults? Doesn't he know my failures? Doesn't he know my shame? He does. Deeper than you know it. More than you are willing to admit. And he still loves you. Why? Because that's who he is. You matter to him. You matter. And that means a few things. One, it means no matter how much culture tells you that you are small, insignificant, or unimportant, with a small, insignificant, unimportant existence, remember this. You matter to Jesus. So much that he himself came to exchange his righteousness for your sin. He didn't send help. He became what you and I need. The, the opposite is also true. No, no matter how much you have, no matter how important culture says that you are, you don't matter because of those things. Don't put your hope in that. Don't put your confidence in that. It can go like that. Or even worse, you can die thinking that's the reason that you matter. 
You matter for the same reason. Because Jesus loves you so much that he came for you and became what you and I need. It also means this. If you matter and if I matter, then getting out of bed matters. There's a beautiful, beautiful book written by a man named Alan Noble, and it's called On Getting Out of Bed. (laughs) And in that book, he says this, you need to know that your being in the world is a witness, and it counts for something. Your existence testifies. There is no mitigating that fact. As you choose each day to act faithfully in the gift of life God has given you, you affirm the goodness of all his creation. You testify through your actions that your neighbor's life is good, that your child's life is a beautiful gift, and that your friend's lives are instances of God's grace. For if you are not God's good creation, then neither am I and neither is anyone else. If you matter and if I matter, getting out of bed matters. And just like we looked at last week, even the mundane things in your life matter. So get out of bed and do the next thing, even when it seems impossible. The last thing is this. If you matter, then your neighbor matters just as much as you do. And so even when we are frustrated or hangry, even when we are upset, remember They matter, and we have to treat each other with the honor and the dignity of this truth. This teaching of Christianity has changed the world. It has led to hospitals, adoption, hospices, public education, more. We could go on and on. All of these things are founded on this truth that no matter what society says, God says you matter, and so It is true, and you matter so much. You matter so much that God sent his son to save the world so that all who believe in him will have eternal life. Let me just encourage you with this one last thing. If you forget that, if you are struggling with that this morning, then don't let the rest of this music slip by you. Let this music and the beauty of it and the truth of these words speak to your heart in a way that nothing else can. And let the Lord do the work in you that you might not have expected when you got out of bed this morning. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that we matter to you. Lord, that that life is worth it because of you. And that every day we go on living is a testament to your goodness. No matter how hard a day is, Lord, we still matter. If we're on top of the world and we have everything to give to you, or if we have nothing but the lint in our pockets and the hope in our hearts, we matter to you. And it is such a beautiful truth that I ask you will bury so deep in our hearts that we will never forget it in the highs and in the lows that we will never forget your love for us and what it cost you so that we can be with you in eternity.
Thank you.